السلام عليكم ورحمة الله أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على سيدنا محمد أشرف الخلق وسيد المرسلين وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين اللهم لا سهل إلا ما جعلته سهلا وأنت تجعل الحزن إذا شئت سهلا سهلا رب اشرح لي صدري ويسر لي أمري وحل العقدة من لساني يفقه قولي اللهم أخرجنا من ظلمات الوهم إلى نور الفهم وأكرمنا بمعرفة العلم وزين أخلاقنا بالحلم يا أرحم الراحمين اللهم بارك لنا في جمعنا هذا اللهم اجعل جمعنا هذا جمعا مباركا مرحوما واجعل تفرقنا من بعده تفرقا معصوما ولا تجعل فينا ولا منا ولا معنا شقيا ولا محروما اللهم حبب إلينا الإيمان وزينه في قلوبنا وكره إلينا الكفر والفسوق والعصيان واجعلنا من عبادك الراشدين اللهم فقهنا في الدين اللهم فقهنا في الدين اللهم فقهنا في الدين اللهم احفظنا بالعلم اللهم احفظنا بالعلم واهدنا إلى حسن العمل واهدنا إلى طلب مرضاتك وإلى روضات جناتك أرحم الراحمين اللهم فك الكرب عنا وعن كل مكروب من أمة محمد صلى الله عليه وسلم أنت به عليم اللهم فك الكرب عن إخواننا المستضعفين في غزة وفي فلسطين اللهم كلهم ناصرا ومعينا ومؤيدا وظهيرا اللهم انصرهم على عدوك وعدوهم اللهم انصرهم على عدوك وعدوهم اللهم عليك بمن ظلمهم اللهم عليك بمن اعتدى عليهم اللهم عليك بمن طغى في البلاد فأكثر فيها الفساد اللهم صب عليهم سوط عذاب اللهم ربنا وحد أمة محمد صلى الله عليه وسلم في كل مكان ردنا إلى دينك مردا جميلا وولي أمورنا خيارنا ولا تولي أمورنا شرارنا ولا تسلط علينا بذنوبنا من لا يخافك ولا يرحمنا والله we call upon you, we pray to you, we beseech you we ask you to bless this gathering oh Allah surround this gathering with your angels shower it with your mercy make this pursuit of ours a pursuit that leads to your jannah oh Allah make us of those who seek a path by which we seek knowledge and make that a path for us to Jannah. We ask you, Allah, to fill our hearts with nur and to grant us fiqh of deen and understanding of our faith. We ask you, Allah, to guide us to the best of action and to guide us to the best of understandings. We ask you, Allah, to better our condition and the condition of the Ummah of Muhammad وسلم, in the East and West. Give charge of our affairs to the best of us, not the worst of us. We ask you, Allah, to unite the Ummah of Muhammad وسلم, upon the Quran, upon the Sunnah, upon the way of our righteous predecessors. We ask you, Allah, to bless us to see the victory of the Ummah of Muhammad وسلم, in the East and West in our lifetimes and to make us agents for change, agents for goodness, and bring goodness wherever we go. Ya Rabbil Alameen, Ameen, Ameen, wa akhir da'wan, alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Amma ba'd, bazaakumullah khair for attending this one day intensive. Uh, I pray that Allah puts a lot of barakah into it. Before I actually get into it, get in it I just want to uh, ask, uh, so the computer is still making sound. Um, uh, it's echoing. Uh, the com- the computer is echoing to me, so I hear my voice. I don't know how to do that. <laughs> I know how to do this. <laughs> uh, so uh, is Ahmed here or someone uh, that could help? Jazakallah uh, khair. Um, so inshallah we're gonna until they do that uh, it's just it's, it's repeating my voice so it's a little awkward <laughs> uh, so until they get to do that uh, inshallah we're gonna be introducing what are we gonna be doing in this one day intensive as I said before uh, if you're not on the whatsapp group uh, please join it 
and um, uh, inshallah you will find that on the WhatsApp group there is uh, the schedule for today. Uh, we're in the first session now. Uh, there's registration so you could get books, so you could get the workbook, so you could get lunch later on inshallah. Session one has already started. It was supposed to start at 12.35. We're supposed to continue to 1.20. Uh, basically, we have seven sessions for the day. Uh, throughout these seven sessions, we're going to go over different subjects uh, that are in the PowerPoint, uh, which is in the workbook. And um, uh, each of these sessions goes over a different, different subject in this science that has developed. It's called Tariq al-Tashri'ah. Tariq al-Tashri'ah, the history of Islamic law, the history of Islamic legislation. And um, this science, as we're going to discuss, gives a good understanding of how Islamic law developed with time. Uh, from the time of the Prophet ﷺ to the time of the companions, the successors, until they became schools of law. So that's, that's what this subject is about. And you know, truly, you know, what I'm hoping to do in these sessions uh, together is to build a sense of commitment to the deen that's based in knowledge. Uh, it's really what we've been trying to do in this masjid through the different courses we've been offering. Uh, because knowledge is a very spiritual pursuit for us as Muslims. A very spiritual pursuit. And that's why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala calls us to seek it in every page of the Qur'an. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, do they not observe? Do they not reflect? Do they not listen? Right? And um, in, other, uh, uh, in other verses, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, قُلْ هَلْ يَسْتَوِي الَّذِينَ يَعْلَمُونَ وَالَّذِينَ لَا يَعْلَمُونَ Are they the same, those who know and those who don't? They're absolutely not the same. Right? In another verse, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, إِنَّمَا يَخْشَ اللَّهَ those who truly have a sense of khashi, and this directs us to what true knowledge looks like. True knowledge changes who I am as a person. It is not information, right? True knowledge changes who I am as a person. It's not mere information, right? Uh, because information in itself won't change the way I operate as a human being. But ilm nafi', beneficial knowledge starts from a spiritual realization within. And that's why khashya in this verse is noted. Those who truly have a sense of humble submission, devotion to Allah, are those people of knowledge. Right? Now this is not referring to knowledge as an endeavor of understanding only. It's referring to it as an endeavor of submission to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Meaning that knowledge needs to penetrate my heart. Many people have information, but they don't have taqwa. So they'll abuse this information. They may be uh, perceived as scholars, imams, or whatnot, but that information has done little to actually change them as, as human beings. So this is what we're seeking. Uh, that connection with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala um, that is rooted in deep understanding, devoted practice, reflection, it covers my entire being, inwardly and outwardly. Inwardly and outwardly. Um, so, uh, in order to do that, uh, Ibrahim, were we able to figure this out? Yeah, you could come do it, don't worry, it's not... Uh, you could get in the stream. Zakallah khair. 
يا الله يا الله I don't hear it now Is that better? You want the laptop? Okay. She wants the laptop. All right. All right. Uh, in order to do that, um, uh, we need to really position knowledge as being part of our path to Jannah. As the Prophet ﷺ says, "Man salaka tariqan yaltamisu fihi ilman, sahal Allahu lahu bihi tariqan ilal Jannah." Whoever treads a path by which he seeks knowledge, Allah will facilitate for him by way of it a path to Jannah. That is what our journey to knowledge needs to look like. Now. On the other hand, so this is what knowledge, true knowledge, should do to us. You know, we're all, in this sense, we're all students of knowledge, from cradle to grave. Till the day I die, I need to be this person who endeavors to better himself, outwardly and inwardly. Learning, truly learning, the inner workings of my soul and those things that are really going to bring me closer to Allah's pleasure. That's what I need to do, right? In order for me to actualize this, I need to... Uh, I need to realize that knowledge is counterpart is ignorance. And what's associated with ignorance is oppression, right? As they say, this is something critical to understand. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he says this in the end of Surah Al-Ahzab. What does he say? He says about the amana and the trust that's been placed on the shoulders of human beings. It's been offered to mountains, and it's been placed on the earth, the heavens above, and they all refuse to carry this amana and this trust. The human being carried it. What does Allah describe human beings as? He was ever oppressive and ever ignorant. So in our understandings of this pursuit of knowledge, I need to realize that I have vulm on one end, I have justice on another end. Oppression, justice, right? Vulm and adl, oppression and justice. And associated with oppression is what? Is ignorance. So oppression and ignorance, hand in hand, right? And then justice and knowledge, hand in hand. This understanding is critical, right? And, and if I, you know... Well, how is that? How is that? Ignorance and ignorance and um, uh, ignorance and oppression. We understand oppression in a different way. Oppression is not what you do to someone else. That's how it's understood in English. The first form of oppression that can be done is to my own self. Vulmin nafs, right? In Rabbini, zalamtu nafsi, fawfili, right? Oh, Allah, I've oppressed myself. Every, every sin that a person falls into comes from a place of ignorance. It comes from uh, being blinded to certain realities. Being blinded to the consequence and end result of affairs. So if I position knowledge in this scope, 
It's a very, very spiritual path. Whether I'm learning about fiqh, history, hadith, whatever I'm learning about, if I position it like this, I will know how to make the most of it. Because I will realize that ultimately what I'm trying to remove from within me are all elements of ignorance. And if I am successful in removing ignorance from my heart, then I am going to be successful in removing all oppression, all forms of oppression from my life. Oppression of my soul, oppression in my misuse of speech, in my relationships, uh, in my attitude towards life, all of this is going to be removed as a blessing of nouns. That's why ilm is the centerpiece of every spiritual path to Allah. Every spiritual path to Allah its centerpiece is guided by knowledge. That's why we're trying to build this culture of knowledge within our mission. I pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, uses us and guides us and blesses us with continued, with knowledge and continued growth until the day we meet Him and He's pleased with us. Allahumma ameen. What are we going to get into now? This tells us some critical things on the path of knowledge. Some critical things. This PowerPoint, uh, it's shared in that WhatsApp group. It's in your workbook. The very first slide tells us essentials of the for the seeker. It's mentioned in two lines of poetry. These are attributed to Imam al-Shafi'i. What does it say? It's, it's, uh, the order is flipped for some reason in the poem here. I don't know, um, but uh, it might be because it's not in PDF form. So, أَخِي لَن تَنَالَ الْعِلْمَ إِلَّا بِسِتَّةٍ سأنبيك عن تفصيلها ببياني ذكاء وحرص واجتهاد وبلغة وصحبة أستاذ وطول زماني I need in order to learn I need to, you know, we're in the do-it-yourself age, right? I need to figure out how to do it yourself do everything all on my own, right? The do-it-yourself age Knowledge does not work if just earned all by myself It's going to be loaded with misconceptions and misunderstandings so the first thing that Imam Shafi'i tells us is I need to accompany a learned person, someone who has authentic knowledge, someone who's studied with other people, someone who's learned from experts. The second thing is intelligence, right? Dhaka'un, right? So he says, this is not in any order, but dhaka' intelligence, a level of intelligence, an inquisitive mind, right? An inquisitive mind, that's why, you know, um, they say, su'alu nisful ilm that asking a good question is half of knowledge. And they say that the only two things that stop a person from asking are haya or kibr, shyness or arrogance. Those are the two things that stop a person from arrogance. I don't want to look vulnerable, so I'm not going to ask. I'm not going to lower myself and degrade myself, I'm not going to ask. These are the two things that stop a person from asking. Arrogance, shyness. So intelligence, meaning an inquisitive mind, right? Um, and this is actually one of the things that Ibn Abbas عنه, was asked. He was asked, how did you attain the knowledge that you attained? And he said, سأول. The first thing he said with a, a, very, a tongue that asks a lot of questions. Um, an inquisitive mind, right? وقلب عقول. Um, uh, I have a mind and, uh, that, that thinks deeply about things, right? Right, so, so, so this is the second thing, intelligence. Accessibility, bulgha, bulgha, being able to access knowledge. This is something that, alhamdulillah, is becoming more and more available 
um, in, uh, in America, in the English language, for many people who aren't able to go overseas and learn. Uh, you know, uh, back um, years back, uh, this wasn't readily available by many people or ma in many communities. Uh, many people, if they wanted to seek knowledge on a deeper level, they had to, they had to travel to learn in um, the centers of learning overseas, whether you're talking about Egypt or Morocco or, um, or, or, or Saudi Arabia or Yemen or other places. Go to the centers of learning and learn from scholars, scholars over there. But alhamdulillah, after waves of students of knowledge went to seek knowledge over there and came back home, now in many communities across America, it's available in English. And this is a blessing. You know, many people, even till now, who attend some of the courses I give, like one of the examples is in fiqh of salah, is I've asked the question, has anyone ever attended a fiqh class before in their life? And many times people, the answer is, the answer is no. What is fiqh? I don't even know what that is. Uh, is that a thing that you know, I'm supposed to ask questions about? Many people do not know this. So having access to knowledge is a blessing that I need to take advantage of. And reliable sources, especially in our day and age, again, Many people find it out of convenience that we, should, we can go on YouTube. Just go on YouTube, watch a bunch of videos, go look things up on Google, go to different websites here and there. But that just doesn't give the full picture that needs to be there. Because there's more to knowledge, we said this, more to knowledge than information, right? Knowledge is meant to be a way of life, a, way, a journey that I endeavor to Allah. So it needs to be centered on uh, something more than just things I find online. Reliable sources, consistency and persistence. You know, this is something very, very difficult in our age, in America especially, especially for um, millennials, uh, uh, to find a sense of commitment where I'm going to actually stick to something. I'm not going to jump around, attend one class here and then miss two classes and then attend another one there. I'm going to, you know, uh, attend half of uh, a session here and a half a session there. I'm going to walk away with a bunch of choppy understandings of things and I'm going to have one job here and then I'm going to quit a few months later and go to another job there and quit that job and I'm going to be through 10 jobs within the span of three years. Uh, that reality of inconsistency is very unhealthy, especially for the pursuit of knowledge. It needs consistency. I need to be willing to, when it's raining outside, when it's snowing, when it's cold, when it's dark. I need to be able to, you know, even if it's not like something extremely intensive, right? I need to be able to be consistent to certain things in my life if I'm going to achieve anything, right? If I'm going to achieve anything, I need consistency. So that's another thing. Hard work and patience, right? Hard work and patience. Knowledge is not this thing that is easily digestible. It needs a lot of thought. It's going to exhaust your mind. Uh, you need to be willing to think of the ins and outs and different. look at things from different angles, right? Even this book here that we're going to study right now, it's by one of the renowned scholars of our modern time, Dr. Umar al-Ashqar. He's a big scholar from Jordan. Um, how many of you know him? Raise your hand. Dr. Umar al-Ashqar. Anyone here know him? Uh, a few people know him. Uh, most people don't. He's very famous. He passed away. Rahimahullah. Um, uh, in this book, you will find, or I, I found certain things as I was reading through the book, uh, that I don't necessarily subscribe to, that I don't agree with, that he said. Not because of my own humble understandings, but because the sources of knowledge that I took from differ from some of the sources of knowledge that he presents here. And that's okay. That's the thing with knowledge and the pursuit of knowledge. People antagonize that which they can't understand. 
right? People are used to thinking in binaries. I'm either fully devoted to fulan or I'm fully against him. No, knowledge breaks me out of all of this sense of um, these, false, uh, these false allegiances. Knowledge, if I'm sincere in this path, it makes me an impartial person. I'm willing to have an opinion today that I take back tomorrow. I'm willing to listen to another perspective. If I'm sincere and humble in the pursuit of knowledge, I will find certain things that I can't comprehend. I may be quick to write it off and dismiss it, or I may be humble enough to, well, you know what, let me listen to the full picture here. And if I'm able to do that, that's when I'll gain actually truly beneficial knowledge. Knowledge is not about submitting your mind to one person or two people or three. It's not about shutting your faculties of reason. It's actually about triggering them, broadening your horizons, researching. That needs a lot of patience. It needs hard work. It needs time. Right? All of this is part of the process of growth. This science that we're studying here is a foundational science, Tariq al-Tashriya. And, and the reason why is it gives me a framework to understand this thing called Islamic law, Sharia. What does it come from? You know, what is it about? You know, it gives me all the pieces I need to approach fiqh with a sense of understanding. I, okay, I know why. Because if I don't have this sense of understanding, what's going to happen? I'm going to get frustrated. Why so many opinions? It doesn't make any sense. What is this, guesswork? Every sheikh is coming up with his own set of opinions. Uh, this is halal and this is haram and this is makruh and this is mustahab. You know, why all of this? What's behind it? A beautiful, rich tradition is behind it that spanned from the time of the Prophet ﷺ to our day and age. A beautiful tradition full of a treasure trove of information. I need to tap into this. There is so much to my deen than I could ever imagine. <coughs> and this is what they say comes with the realization of how expansive ilm is. They say that uh, knowledge is three milestones. Knowledge is three milestones. The first of these milestones, whoever reaches the first milestone of knowledge, will become arrogant. I know it all. Yeah, I took a course on this. I know it by heart, in and out. I have all the answers. I don't need to ask anybody, right? Uh, I took a course here and there uh, about some subjects in Islamic law, and all of a sudden I am Sheikh al-Islam. I'm the scholar of my times, right? And, and that's a very deep disease. That's a scary disease. May Allah protect us from it. May Allah forgive us. Um, that's the first milestone. Whoever reaches the second milestone of knowledge, as they say, in Arabic they say, whoever reaches the first milestone will be humbled. <coughs> whoever reaches the second one um, will be humbled. Whoever reaches the second one will be humbled because they'll realize, whoa, there's more to this than I thought. That's why it's funny. Sometimes when people are in the very early stages of learning, they think that, oh, it's just the Qur'an and Bukhari. That's the thing, it's Qur'an and Bukhari, right? I find a hadith in Bukhari, I say, oh, Imam Shafi'i was wrong. There's a hadith in Bukhari that goes against him. Uh, and I'm not going to even worry about the commentaries of Bukhari. I'm just going to say it flat out. I got a hadith in Bukhari, Imam Shafi'i, Imam Abu Hanifa. Some people say foolish things like, oh, the, the Hanafi school is a weak school because it's not based in hadith. Right? And of course, there's, uh, there's so much ignorance in that statement, the person can't even realize the ignorance that's coming out of their mouth when they take one hadith and they cancel out one of the schools of Islamic law because they found one hadith 
in translation. They can't even read the Arabic. They just read the translation and they'll cancel out the, 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 the school of Islamic law because of the translation they found. Okay. So, what's the third one? Now, uh, whoever reaches the third milestone of knowledge, what are they going to say? They're going to know that they know nothing. <laughs> the, so basically, the, the, the deepest part of knowledge is in real, realizing that my knowledge in comparison to Allah's knowledge is so insignificant. I know nothing. When it comes to Allah's knowledge, I realize how magnificent His all-encompassing knowledge is. I'm just going to be so humbled that I'm going to realize, hey, you know what? I don't know. I don't know. That's why we learn from our scholars saying, I don't know. We learn from our scholars. Sometimes people, they'll find themselves in gatherings. Um, um, they'll find themselves in gatherings and they'll be hasty to answer questions. Oh, I know the ruling on that and the ruling on that and the ruling on that. And I'm just like answering every single thing. And you know what? Uh, uh, you know, I, I won't even show any regard if there's a person more knowledgeable than me in the gathering. Right? That's a scary disease. I need to be careful. Because our scholars teach us that saying I don't know is actually one of the most profound answers you could give in many situations. Right? Imam Malik gives us this answer. Someone came from the far lands of the West during his time. Uh, the, you know, whatever was part of the Muslim world at that time. And they came to ask him a set of questions. I think it was in like the range of 40 questions. They gathered questions from different people. They made this journey to ask Imam Malik, the most knowledgeable person of our times. And he said to 36 of these questions, I don't know. <laughs> so the man was like, I made a far journey. He's like, if you don't know, then who knows? Who knows if you don't know? So then Imam Malik got irritated with the man. He got angry. He said, the one who Allah taught is the one who knows, not me. Imam Malik says, I don't know. Right? So this is something to think about as we're endeavoring in this. I don't want to spend too much time on this because we have a lot of slides to get through. Now, what are we trying to get through in this course? You read on this slide right here. This course aims to develop a basic level of literacy on the history of the four schools and the philosophy of Islamic law. This course will shed light upon the origins of revelation. And in doing so, we'll give a cursory look into the sources of legislation. A cursory look into the sources of legislation. Cursory, why? Because you're not going to learn the sources of Islamic law here. There's a science for that. It's called usul al-fiqh. That's, uh, that's source methodology or principles of Islamic law as they translate it. Usul al-fiqh is one of the sciences we can study, inshallah, and we will study if Allah gives us life and if Allah gives us ability. Um, among the essentials of this course is to discuss the basic principles that have governed Islamic legal discourse for, for over 1400 years. Right? This course will also discuss dynamics of scholarly difference, the framework of juristic opinions, and the development of the four schools, which we call madhahib, madhahib fiqhiyah. It'll also discuss, uh, so, no, sorry, the last line is from something else. That's not supposed to be there. Um, what are the, you know, so, tariq al-tashri'ah, or the history of Islamic law, is a science that developed later on. It wasn't one of the first sciences that developed. It actually pieced together a few different sciences. Some of these sciences we studied. Like we said, the whole point of Tariqh al-Tashri'ah is to give you a bird's eye view of the expansive nature of Islamic law. 
You want to have all the strings in your hands as you're going to study? This is the history that was behind all of the opinions that you read in the different schools. What are the sciences that were put into Tariq al-Tashriya? One of them is Ulum al-Quran. We studied Ulum al-Quran in this masjid, Quranic sciences. How many of you attended that course? Please raise your hand. How many of you attended that course? Raise your hand high. Um, one, two, three, four, five. Not many of you. Okay, good. So the information here will not be... Some of the slides is taken from Ulum al-Quran because it's relevant here. So it won't be redundant to you. Uh, the second science it takes from is Mustalah al-Hadith, Hadith sciences. And um, how many of you have taken a course on that? I, ha I, don't, I didn't give it in this masjid. How many of you have taken a course on Mustalah al-Hadith? Uh, hadith studies, Hadith sciences. Anyone? No one. Okay, inshallah we'll do this one time. Uh, another one is Usul al-Fiqh, principles of Islamic law. How many of you have taken a course on that? Raise your hand. Okay, one person's taken a course on that. Alright, the fourth one... And this is not on a deep level, uh, but fiqh is one of the sciences that relates to this, fiqh. And the last one is Islamic history. So these five things create for us what? What we call tarikh al-tashriya. History of Islamic law or the evolution of fiqh. However you want to call it. Some books title it the evolution of fiqh, history of Islamic law. All pretty much the same thing. Um, now, sharia and fiqh. Sharia and fiqh. This starts by giving us insight into the terms, both of these terms, fiqh and sharia, I'm sure are terms that you've heard. If you want to keep your book open and follow along with me as I'm explaining, I'm going to be using the book and the PowerPoint. I'm looking at page two in the book. Page two in the book. One of the convenient things about this book is it has Arabic and English next to each other. So if you're someone who understands Arabic, this is very useful. If you don't understand Arabic, it might be a distraction. I don't know. <clears throat> so, page two. Definition of fiqh. If you look at the PowerPoint, it summarizes it for you here. This actually, this slide summarizes sharia. The term sharia. So, what are the... what what? Does Sharia mean, right? Doesn't mean terrorism, right? Sharia law doesn't mean terrorism. No, that's something else. Um, sharia means the watering place for the animals. Shara'at al right? Shara'at al ibl idha waradat Sharia al What is this? This is where the animals come to nourish their bodies, the watering well of animals, the watering place of animals. Sharia also comes from another meaning, and that is a shara, a nahj, the path, right? A tariq al wadih, right? Um, now, uh, the clear path, right? This is actually, um, it's used in the Quran in the term shara'a lakum min ad ma wasa bihi nuha. It's used as shara'a. The verb form of it, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has legislated for you. In that sense, it's used in the sense of legislation. But here the linguistic wording for it tells us the two ultimate objectives for Islamic law, for sharia. Sharia is meant to nourish me, is meant to fulfill me. Just as the watering place fulfills the animals, it's meant to fulfill and nourish me inwardly and outwardly. That's Sharia. 
It is also meant to be the path to my salvation, right? And in this linguistic sense, it's used in the Quran. You see the verses here on the slide. Then we put you, Muhammad, on an ordained way concerning the matter of religion. He has ordained for you, I said legislated, ordained for you of religion, what he enjoined upon Nuh. Or have they other deities who have ordained for them a religion to which Allah has not consented? That's Sharia. Now, in essence, Sharia is what gathers all that is truly beneficial. What's the cause of Sharia? تحقيق مصالح العباد It is for the fulfillment of what is truly beneficial for Allah's creation. That's what Sharia linguistically means. That which Allah has legislated for His servants, including faith, worship, moral code, transactions, social values, that govern relationships between people, and the relationship between the Creator and the created, in a way that inspires prosperity in this life and the next. That's how one of the scholars, his name is uh, Sheikh Manna al-Qattan, uh, may Allah have mercy on him. He defined um, Sharia in this way. It is something that relates to my relationship with Allah, relationship with people. It is something that doesn't only relate to matters of law. That's why um, uh, those Islamophobes who are trying to pass laws to ban Sharia actually have um, no understanding of what these terms mean. Sharia is a bigger term than fiqh. Right? It's this umbrella term. It includes our moral code. Our connection with the Quran. It includes spirituality. It includes everything that's part of Islam. So someone who's trying to ban Sharia is actually trying to ban Islam. Right? That's, that's something to note. Now, um, there's another thing here in this relationship between the technical and the linguistic. Sharia was named as such analogously to the watering place from the standpoint that one who appropriately treads its path will feel a sense of fulfillment and clarity. That's what Sharia is trying to do. Give me fulfillment and give me clarity. Now, we said Sharia is this expansive term. It's an umbrella term. It could be also used to refer to the legal side of things. But that's not the original usage of the term. What's the difference between sharia and fiqh? What's the difference between the two? Sharia is from Allah's revelation. Sharia is, is guidance, revelation from Allah. That can't be wrong. That cannot be in error according to our belief and our creed. Sharia will not be wrong. Fiqh is our understanding of Sharia. Fiqh is our understanding of Sharia. And that's where page 2 comes into play. Fiqh is referring to fahm, understanding. Look at the verse he mentions about Sayyidina Shu'aib. When Prophet Shu'aib called his people to embrace what Allah had sent him with, his people said to him, O Shu'aib, in no way do we comprehend right? and there are other verses to the same effect uh, so they may get an understanding a deep understanding of religion 
There's a hadith of the Prophet ﷺ in which he says, Whoever Allah wants goodness for him, he will give him fiqh of deen. What does that mean? Understanding of deen. So that's one of the big blessings from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Page 2 and 3 are all basically describing linguistic usages of the term fiqh. All linguistic usages of the term fiqh. Now, as you could see in this figure here, I know the writing is a little off. It needs to be uh, um, more clear. But you could make out the words uh, in the workbook. Uh, Sharia can refer to all religious teachings. And there's an inner and an outer dimension to it. And it could also be used to refer to Islamic law. And even under Islamic law, we have different types of laws. We have those laws that are relevant to the application of the individual, right? This is personal law, right? Um, how I'm going to pray, how I'm going to fast, how I'm going to do hajj, how I'm going to give zakah. These are part of fiqh. But it also extends to things that relate to your dealings with others, like commerce law, fiqh of transactions, right? And it also extends to what? Domestic law, about marriage, divorce, inheritance. All of this is within the realm of the application of individuals. The last three I mentioned are also, uh, the, the last few I mentioned are subject to the laws and the governance, the form of governance of where you live, right? The, the rules for um, initiating a marriage, uh, for um, uh, having a divorce, uh, the, 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 the requirements for inheritance to be distributed and be affirmed legally. Um, uh, and then also in commerce law, there are certain um, you know, uh, guidelines uh, that I need to adhere to as a person who operates within the industry. And, uh, you know, and so on and so forth. So that all is subject to some of the restrictions of the state. right? But the first part of it, that's purely what I practice as an individual. right? And then the last one is penal code. This is purely the function of the state. This is not something that I even aspire to apply as an individual. right? No one as an individual Muslim in our country is seeking to apply the penal code of Islam, right? That's not something that's a decision for an individual. That's for a state to take charge of, right? So this is something that we need to be clear on and what, what fiqh means, all right? So there, there's an important thing here. Uh, it says it on the PowerPoint, fiqh is largely probable by nature. Al-fiqhu min bab al-dhunun. And that's why... As a student of fiqh, I understand that if someone does not adhere to a fiqhi ruling, that does not cause them to leave the folds of Islam. Because fiqh is not relating to matters of creed. Matters of creed are what cause people to be excluded from Islam if they breach them to a certain degree. Like for example, what? If you don't believe in a day of judgment, you can't be a Muslim. Right? If you believe in a prophet after Prophet Muhammad وسلم, then you can't be a Muslim because the Quran directly refers to him as the seal of prophets. 
That's a matter of creed and belief. But when it comes to fiqh, we're dealing with a different tier of, uh, of commitments, right? A different tier, a different level of commitments. Fiqh does not have the same critical nature as creed and aqidah does. However, that doesn't mean that fiqh is insignificant. Fiqh being of a probable nature is not the product of guesswork. No, no. The Prophet ﷺ taught us fiqh. We get principles from his words, from his conduct, about how to understand things in a fiqhi framework, in a legal framework, right? So fiqh is not just something all guesswork of people, of human beings, right? Some people, they see it like that, right? Right? They're men, I'm, we're men too, right? We'll, we'll, we'll make our own opinions. I don't need to listen to the, anything else. I just have the verses of the Quran. You know, that is one of the forms of misguidance that came about in the Ummah of Muhammad. There are a few different here. One of these forms of misguidance are people who thought that they should only, or think that they should only adhere to the Quran. I'm just going to follow what's in the Quran. That's it. Nothing else. I'm going to take with what's the guidance, because that's the word of the Quran, the word of Allah. I'm not going to take anything that's not in the Quran. That's it. Just the Quran. This is utter misguidance because you cannot understand the Quran without having what? Without? Sunnah. Sunnah is an explanation of the Quran. Someone who's making this call uh, is seeking to demolish Islam from its core. Because the Qur'an needs an explanation, that explanation is called the sunnah. So if you reject the sunnah, you're effectively rejecting the Qur'an. Right? So this is one of the forms of misguidance in the ummah. Another form of misguidance is what? I'm just going to take the verses of the Qur'an and then the hadiths, and I'm not going to listen to anything anyone else said. Right? That's it. I'm gonna, I have my own mind. I'm going to make my own interpretations and my own conclusions. I'm going to hold this translation of the Qur'an in front of me and I'm going to start teaching people from the translation. And this is, of course, great misguidance and innovation. Right? This, the guidance, the, the Prophet ﷺ set for us the standard that, uh, the, that, the, that the knowledge of the Qur'an and Sunnah will be carried by generations. It'll generationally be propagated by people of knowledge and understanding. As the Prophet ﷺ, he says in the hadith, يَحْمِلُوا هَذَا الْعِلْمِ مِنْ كُلِّ خَلَفٍ From every generation, there will be carriers of this knowledge who are justly upright. That will remove any false interpretations, any forms of extreme practice, and so on and so forth, as the Prophet ﷺ said. So this is how we understand fiqh. Probable in nature, what does that mean? It's not at the same level of creed. But does that mean that it's just guesswork? Absolutely not. Who set the standard for fiqh? The Prophet ﷺ himself, and we're going to come to learn this. All right. This is, the, we went over some of these already. These are examples of how fiqh is used. And the Prophet ﷺ, look, the Prophet ﷺ in this last hadith on this slide, may Allah brighten. A man who hears a tradition from us, gets it by heart, and passes it on to others. Many a bearer of knowledge conveys it to one who is more versed than he is, and many a bearer of knowledge is not versed in it at all. Right? So there's a Prophet. He said, um, <clears throat> Now this teaches us. 
the Prophet ﷺ is teaching us critical thinking. You know, we as an ummah um, should be rejoiced to the fact that our deen celebrates critical thinking, embraces the function of the mind. Whereas you'll find many religions operate on the basis of shutting off reason. Because if you think too hardly, you'll recognize all the falsehood in the religion. Right? But Islam tells us, if it's indeed from Allah, you will find it consistent. There'll be much contradictions in it if it's not from Allah. Right? So this is something... You know, and the prophets, why, why, why this? We're going to learn this in the end of today. You know, why does reason need to be implemented to address reality? Why can't we just use the verses of the Quran and Sunnah? This is a critical question that this intensive is going to address. I'm going to wait to go in more detail to the end, the last session of today. But for starters, I need to understand one important principle, they say. All right. uh, to explain this principle, I'll ask you a question. How many verses are there in the Qur'an? Who can answer this question? Raise your hand. Who can answer? How many verses? Kam ayah fil Qur'an? 6,000 and some change, right? 6,236. I think there's different countings, by the way, uh, based on the different masahif. But anyway, that's a different subject. Anyway, 6,000 plus. Let's, stay, let's stick with 6,000 plus. How many hadiths? We're going to learn how many hadiths are in Bukhari, Muslim, Abu Dawood, Nasa'i, these books of hadith. We're going to learn each book of hadith. These six books that are the center or I should say the, the primary sources for all hadith knowledge. They're not the only sources, the, the primary sources. Now, how many hadiths are there? Even if you don't know the answer to this question, there is a critical principle here to understand. The number of source texts are limited. How many are there going to be? 1,000, 10,000, 20,000, 30,000? What are you going to say? What are you going to say? You're going to say a certain number. But the amount of things that could possibly occur in daily life are endless, right? So here's the principle, if you want to write it down somewhere. Why, this answers the question, why must reason be implemented in addressing reality? Why? Answer? Because source texts are limited and the Possible events that may occur in life are endless. So in order to address the endless, I need to be able to apply a certain mechanism to what's mentioned to be able to find the answers to that which is not mentioned. That's the precedent of fiqh, and that's why fiqh is so important. But now here, let me expand it a little more. Let me expand it. This is an important slide, slide 10. It's a really important slide. And just to stay, I know we started a little late, but just to stay with our order, um, I'm going to explain this slide, and then we'll take, um, so I'm going to explain this slide, and just, I'm going to go on for five more minutes, and then we're going to take our 
first five-minute break, inshallah. All right. So what is fiqh? This gives me a critical understanding about the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. The original meaning of fiqh in Arabic has to do with deep understanding. Imam al-Ghazali and others know that early generations used the word fiqh to refer to knowledge of the path to the afterlife. This is uh, actually, uh, Imam Abu Hanifa also said this. What is that? What did he say? What is fiqh? Huwa talabu tariq al-akhirah. The, the, the essence of what fiqh is, seeking the path of the afterlife. Why define it in such a general way? Why? Because, and this is how fiqh was addressed in the early generations, by the way. They would have books of fiqh that um, speak about creed, tazkiyah, spirituality first, and then go into the legal aspects. To gather between the inward and the outward, Right? And, and, and that's why, the, between the two fiqhs, fiqh al-qulub, fiqh al-abdan, right? The fiqh of the heart, and understanding the function of the heart, which you learn in spirituality, and tasawwuf and tazkiyah, and fiqh al-abdan, in which you learn the function of the body, and how it needs to, the ritual procedures of worship, and acts of devotion, and relationships, and transactions, and all the rest. Look at what it says here on the fiqh gives you. Look at this. Fiqh gives you the basic parameters for halal and haram. Tazkiyah gives you the path to ihsan. The basic framework is not enough for us to follow as, as Muslims. You know, if someone approaches fiqh with absolutely no spiritual moral compass, they will abuse the information they get. Why? They will um, try to find every legal loophole to get out of devotion, right? This is, this is how some people approach fiqh, by the way. Right? I'm going to go to Sheikh Fulan and Sheikh Fulan and Sheikh Fulan. And I'm, oh yeah, the, there's an opinion that says that. And one of the tabi'een said that. And one of the sahaba said that. doesn't matter if this opinion is against the whole rest of the ummah. Uh, but there's one person in our history who said it a thousand years ago. And, uh, or more than a thousand years ago. And that's what matters, right? I am going to find... Every, I'm going to be a master of loopholes. I am going to make all things halal by finding some legal justification for that. That is how people with no moral compass or spiritual compass approach fiqh. Right? No sense of wara' and no sense of taqwa. Right? Whereas fiqh gives me the bare minimums. Don't cross these boundaries. Now, tazkiyah comes along and pushes me, you know, I'm going to do what's best. I'm going to try to attain ihsan. I'm going to have to change batteries a few times today, it looks like it. <laughs> um, I may fall short. I may fall short. Uh, and certain times I'm going to need to follow a dispensation, a rukhsa. It's, this situation is too difficult for me. I need an easier opinion. And that's okay. But ultimately, I will not become a fatwa shopper. Right? Do your shopping at Walmart. No, no, don't do it at Walmart. If you're going to boycott Walmart. Um, uh, 
we don't want to go to the subject of boycotting again. Anyway, um, uh, but the point is, do your shopping somewhere, uh, wherever that is. Do your shopping at Brothers Produce, inshallah. That's the best place. Do it at Brothers Produce. Hisbit uh, Halima, may Allah bless them and reward them. Uh, uh, but um, anyway, uh, don't do your shopping with fatwas. That is dangerous. When you try to find legal justifications for your hawa and your whim, that's a problem. That's where this comes into play. Letter of the law, spirit of the law, right? Deviance of limiting yourself to bare minimals of fiqh. There is an inner, inward, inner dimension and an outer dimension, right? This is a critical thing to understand here. Now, there is this nice handoff between fiqh and usul al-fiqh. That's what the last thing on this slide tells you. It gives you the definition of fiqh. What is fiqh? It is the knowledge of the legal rulings related to actions derived from their particular evidences. Fiqh relates to every action. Every action has a fiqhi ruling. It's either obligatory, haram, uh, offensive, mustahab, or it's mubah, or it's allowable. There's not a single action in existence that doesn't have a fiqh ruling applying to it. Many things will fall in the realm of mubah, ibaha, right? It'll fall in the realm of what is mubah and allowable. Al-ibaha al-asli, al-aslu fil-ashya al-ibaha. The default ruling in things is that they are permissible. Except certain things. We'll get to that later, inshallah. But anyway, fiqh relates to actions. And these actions are judged and assessed according to detailed evidences. What does detailed evidences here mean? This is a reverse to the verses of the Quran, hadith of the Prophet, scholarly analogy, consensus, other things, all of which you will learn in a science called usul al fiqh. Principles of Islamic law, right? That's this slide. The rest of it goes into something called the ten introductory principles. They, these are easy. Um, uh, we don't even need to spend much time on them. But basically, these ten introductory principles are principles that guide our understanding to studying every science in, within the Islamic disciplines. I first need to know the definition, the subject matter. What is this subject about? The benefits of learning it. The merits of studying it, its relationship with other sciences, right? The, who's the founder of the science? What is it called? What are its sources? And what's the legal ruling of studying it, right? So this is all covered here for fiqh, right? So like we said, we already went over the subject matter of fiqh. What is it? The actions of legally responsible individuals in relation to 10 rulings. They're ahkam uh, al what, what is the benefit? What's the benefit of studying fiqh? Actually... And I want to emphasize this. We're going to end in two minutes, inshallah. We're going to end at 145 sharp. Um, so, what's the benefit of studying fiqh? It is actually one of the most spiritual things you could possibly do. Why? All right? Because they say, they say, Be very cognizant and aware of the boundaries of Allah, and you will be the most pious of people. Actually, when I study fiqh, I am understanding what Allah wants of me and what He doesn't want of me. I'm understanding the boundaries of Allah. That's why they asked, um, uh, the, I think it was Abu Yusuf, um, to write a book. Yeah, it's Abu Yusuf, the, the student of Imam Abu Hanifa. They asked him to write a book in Islamic spirituality. And he said, I already did. They said, what is it called? He said, it's called Al-Kharaj. That's a book about commerce law. <laughs> So they laughed, and the, the explanation here is what? 
If I'm someone who knows how to operate with a moral compass when it comes to money, what does that mean? I'm a very spiritual and spiritually in tuned person. Right? So anyway, the benefit of studying this is compliance with religious commands and prohibitions. Right? This is a form of dhikr to Allah, studying fiqh. What is the merit of studying it? Whoever Allah wishes well for, he gives him fiqh of his deen. We ran over this. What's its relationship to the other sciences? It's one of the three sharia sciences. Uh, tafsir, hadith, and fiqh. These are the three sharia sciences. There are other sciences that are tool sciences to them. These sciences are critical that I invest my time in learning because part of what I'm going to study in fiqh is fardain, right? And part of it is fard kifaya. So individual obligations, community obligations. Right? I'm going to skip over that. Um, who's the founder of fiqh? Allah and his messenger, of course. Who are the first to codify? What does codify mean? Write in books. Make laws, principles, guidelines. That's what codify means. Who are the first to codify? These are the four imams. We're going to learn about them later on in this series, inshallah ta'ala. What's the legal ruling of studying it? Right? Uh, what are the sources? Like we said, you learned this in, in usul fiqh. What are the legal rulings of studying it? Some of it's fardain, some of it's fard kifaya. Right? Community obligations versus individual obligations. What's an individual obligation? That's something that every single Muslim needs to know. And this individual obligation is going to vary based on my commitments and my responsibilities. Then what's the second thing after that? Fard kifaya. That's something that needs to be preserved communally. If we don't preserve it communally, then we're going to all be liable. Right? So this is... Um, and these are the subjects that you cover in fiqh. Right? Fiqh of worship, judicial system, fiqh of transactions, domestic law, inheritance law, marriage, divorce, criminal law, injurious crimes, types of wrongful, wrongful killing, blood indemnities, jihad, um, hunting and slaughtering, oaths and vows, so on and so forth. Right? That is the end of section 1. And it's 145. So we're going to take a pause here. And we're going to continue after five minutes, bi'idhnillah. I just want to note to you guys, by the way, that there was a slido created, I believe, right? It's, um, uh, the, so the slido is in the WhatsApp group. Like I said, join the WhatsApp group, guys. You'll find the information um, is going to be shared through there. So you need to be part of that, inshallah. So if you have questions, send them on the slido. And as we're going, I'll go through them and I'll answer what's relevant to the course today, inshallah. Now we'll take our five-minute break and we'll resume at 1.50, inshallah. Jazakumullah khair. Assalamu alaikum.